Well, good evening, everyone. Can I add to the welcome that Colin gave me and thank Colin for leading and also to the musicians for leading us in our worship this evening. As Colin said, we will, uh, I will do my best to be finished in good time for those who want to go to the Esher Hall and uh, uh, to hear John Oatberg and uh, the choir that are singing later on at 8 o'clock this evening. I suspect it will start a little late because normally loads of people haven't got tickets and they're queued up to get them. So uh, with that conviction, uh, that gives me a little more liberty. Up to mid-December last year, nearly 25,000 boys and just under 23,700 girls were born in Scotland in the year 2003. Uh, the official lists, which are published by the Register General for Scotland, reveal not only the numbers, but also the names given to these children. Just over 2,100 different first names for boys and nearly 3,200 different first names for girls. Jack has now been replaced by Lewis, as the most popular boy's name in Scotland, while Emma knocked Chloe off the top spot she had held for the last five years. Among boys, Logan is up 16 places to 30th, Ethan up 12 places to 35th, and Owen up 9 places to 46th, but Liam is down 7 places to 14th, Ross is down six places to 15th, and Jordan is down 14 places to 48th. Among girls, Amy is up 11 places to 18th, Molly is up 16 places to 28th, Daisy is up 50 places to 81st. But Nicole is down 18 places to 35th, Jade is down 51 places to 87th, and Claire is down 19 places to 89th. If you want to find out, look at the website and find out if your name is on the increase in popularity or on the downward spiral. All of us here this evening have given names. Those of us who are privileged to be parents give names to our children. And in our culture, the names we choose are often a matter of fashion, dictated by people who are popularised in the media, or often chosen from our family's history, are they not? The more thoughtful may choose a name because of what the name means. And among Christians, uh, on the premise that uh, there's nobody in the Bible who didn't have a scriptural name, uh, Bible names are very popular, uh, though not all names. There aren't too many Judases or Jezebels around. However, in many non-Western societies, as in the ancient world, Names carry much greater significance and they're often chosen very carefully. For a name is far more than a name. Some of you are from other parts of the world and you'll know what I'm talking about. The name represents the whole person, who you are. So, if someone asks you, what is your name? Lesson one in language learning. You may well choose not to carelessly disclose your personal or most intimate name in case the person you tell it to takes it and misuses it or abuses it and so defames your character and your reputation. Now this is the background then to the third of the Ten Commandments that we're looking at and the reason I've chosen the title, I actually borrowed it from a book by one of our former assistants, Alistair Begg, if you want a good book on the Ten Commandments called Pathway to Freedom, uh, the title, What's in a Name? Let me remind you, as Colin did at the beginning, what the third commandment says. It's in Exodus 20, verse 7. 
You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. If you grew up in church and know the older versions of the Bible, you may remember the older translation. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And most of us, I guess, if we've got a kind of church background, we think, at last, some relief. Here's one of the commandments where I'm off the hook. For we take this to apply to people who, sadly in our society, increasingly use the name of God or Jesus simply, carelessly, as an oath or even a curse. I was interested to discover that the ninth edition of the Oxford Concise Dictionary, published in 1995, this is what it puts the entry for the name Jesus. Jesus, colloquial interjection, an exclamation of surprise, dismay, etc. Brackets, name of founder of Christian religion, died around about AD 30. Now, most dictionaries at least put Jesus proper title at the beginning with the exclamation second. But whatever the case, what I want to say this evening is that I don't think that that is primarily what this commandment is about, bad though it is. It covers a whole lot of other things that we need to think about. And the main thing you need to notice, as with all the Ten Commandments, is that these are commandments that are given to the people of God. Notice what it says. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. It's written, commanded, urged upon people who, who are in a relationship with God. So, rather than as letting us off the hook if we're Christians, it places on, on the hook very firmly. As we discover that misusing the name of the Lord our God covers far more than using it, sadly, as an expletive. So, I simply want to look at this subject this evening under three headings, a little more closely. First of all, knowing the name of the Lord. Secondly, what does it mean to bear the name of the Lord? And then the application, once you've laid those foundations, what does it then mean to misuse the name of the Lord? So, let's first of all then look at knowing the name of the Lord. In a song written in the period where he'd made a, a Christian commitment, Bob Dylan wrote a song. It's one of my favourites. I've got it on record. The album is called Slow Train Coming which picks up on an aspect of the creation account in the book of Genesis that's often overlooked. Uh, the song was called, Man Gave Names to All the Animals. It's in a place over the PA system, but I thought it might get in trouble. But anyway, um, and if you read the book of Genesis, very interesting. Way back in Genesis, chapter 2, God gives man the privilege of naming all the animals. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever name, the, whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Uh, and in the song, Bob Dylan imagines uh, man looking at animals and looking at their shape and their character and giving them an appropriate name. An animal that wasn't too large, it wasn't too big. Aha, uh -huh, I think I'll call it a pig. Uh, uh, great record, you should get it. Now, obviously, he's using it with English names, not Hebrew names, or whatever original language Adam spoke. But the insight is accurate. To give a name to something means that you understand it and are responsible for it. So the last name that Adam chooses is a name for the woman that God gives him 
made from his side, who is to be a helper to him, his wife. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. However, there is one being that man did not name. God. Uh, J. John, in his book on the Ten Commandments, again, well worth reading, uh, comments, God does not let human beings name him. Why not? One reason is that God is above us, and in the Bible, the inferior does not name the superior. Another reason it's probably related is the fact that no human being could name God properly. We wouldn't have a clue what to call him. Any name of God would have to refer to who God was, and would have to be in some way descriptive of him. That would be far too much for us. For one thing, we cannot understand God enough to name him, and for another, our language is inadequate for us to even try. Now, of course, it's very different if you break the second commandment. The second commandment we looked at is, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You see, when you make something like a god, then you've made it. You control it. And you give it a name. The sun god, the moon god, the fish god, or whatever. Idolatry is making God in our own image, out of our own imagination. But the truth is, reflected in the biblical account, is that God made man in his own image, and we cannot name him, for he is far beyond our understanding, our knowledge. Thankfully, however, the record of the Bible is that God has made himself known to us, and he does this by revealing his name which reveals his character. I hope you're all meant to follow this. It's quite an important concept. It's not the easiest thing on a, on a Sunday evening, so stay with me, all right? We looked at this the other week when we looked at the first commandment. God makes his name known to Moses, who is the leader of Israel, the one to whom he gave the Ten Commandments. When God calls Moses, way out in the desert, 80 years old, and says, Moses, you shall lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God reveals his name to him. You see, Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name then? What shall I tell them? Now notice the answer God gives him to pass on. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. Now I think, if you were to invent a name for God, the last name you would ever call any God is I Am. I Am, that I Am. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And as we saw in our last study of the first commandment, this special name, I Am, which is written in our Bibles with capital letters, Lord, means something like, I am the ever-living one. I'm in a different character to human beings. I'm the one who was and is and is to come. Unlike any other human being, unlike any other God. But the name is not just a name. It's not just sort of a kind of logo, you know, today that, you know, that the, the PR people would say, oh, well, this is the name, we're going to promote the name with the image. It's not just a name as the Israelites and the Egyptians come to discover. For the Lord reveals his name by acting, which then reveals his character and the kind of God that he is. 
He shows his power. You know the story of the ten. You know the story of the Israelites in Egypt. God sends these plagues upon the upon the Egyptians. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, "The Lord has told me you to let my people go." Pharaoh says, "The Lord, who's the Lord? Never heard of him." And the Egyptians had all their own gods and their own magicians and their own priests. We don't know this Lord. So Moses said, right, he'll demonstrate to you who he is by intervening in your history. And so the plagues are sent one after the other. And despite the evidence, Pharaoh refuses to submit to the Lord and acknowledge who the Lord is, that he is the one true God. And the final judgment comes when Pharaoh and his army are drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. And the Lord tells Moses his purpose in doing this. He says, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. They'll understand what my name means, who I am. God acts in judgment, but he also reveals himself in salvation for the same Red Sea the Israelites walked through on dry ground. So the Ten Commandments are given to God's people to those to whom he's made himself known. Exodus 20 begins right at the beginning. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And the subsequent history of Israel in what we call our Old Testament is the story of the revelation of God's name. It's the story of God working out his character in history. Everything that happens reveals more about who this God is, what the limits or non-limits of his power are. The special name of the Lord, someone's counted, the special name of the Lord is found 6,828 times in the Old Testament. And the other name, the general name for God, is found under the 2,600 names. And so, every time you come to the people of God meeting together, what do they do? Well, they praise God for who he is, they praise his holy name, as we've attempted to do in some of our opening songs. Uh, think, for example, of Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, says the psalmist. Praise his holy name. And then he goes on to describe what his name is like. Praise the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. In other words, this is the name. Behind the name is the character of God. Now that's the Old Testament. Now here's the even better news. The clearest, the fullest, the final way in which God has made himself known was when God comes into our world in human form in the person of his son, Jesus. Before he was even born, his parents were told, very interestingly, his parents were told, you to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua means saviour. And living up to his name... Jesus fulfills his rescue mission. Dying on a cross, bearing our sin, revealing the full extent of God's love for us. In the book of Philippians, in the New Testament, written to Christians in Philippi, there's a great hymn of praise recorded there, and it tells the story of Jesus' condescension. Christ Jesus, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it says that God accepted this. God then exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him, notice, he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Very interesting to think about the man who wrote those words, or recorded them anyway. He was a strict Jew called Saul. came from a place called Tarsus. He once told his story to a king, and he said, O king, he said, at one time I did all that I could. I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's in Acts 26, verse 9. Why? Because these Christians were claiming that this name of Jesus was equal with the name of God. And to a Jew, it was blasphemous. Um, You know the story on that wonderful day on, on the road to Damascus, out to persecute and harass these followers of the name of, who profess the name of Jesus. A light flashes from the sky, he's knocked to the ground, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he recognizes it's the voice of God. And so he says, who are you, Lord? Lord? Yes, the name. Who are you, Lord? And the astonishing answer comes, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He realized that Jesus is Lord. And he was given the mission by Jesus to carry his name to the Gentile Roman world. Now, this reminds us then of the second fact. That's knowing the name of Jesus. Knowing the name of God. God has revealed his name, revealed his character to us. The second thing then is bearing the name of the Lord. Many Israelites literally carried the name of God for it was included in the names that they gave to their children. So, you may well know this, but in the Old Testament, every time you see a Hebrew name that has the the letters E-L, usually at the end of it, that's the name for God in Hebrew. So, for example, take a character like Daniel, which means in Hebrew, God has judged. If a name ends or sometimes begins in the English letters Jah or Yah or E-I-A-H, that is an abbreviation of the name of the Lord that's translated Lord. So, for example, one of Daniel's three companions was a man called Azariah, which means the Lord has helped. You see, the name you carry is the name of your God. It expresses your allegiance to that God. So you remember Daniel and his three friends, they were carried off into exile by the superpower of the day Babylon. What happened when they got there? They were all given new names. So Daniel, God has judged, the Babylonians said, no, no, son, you're now called Belteshazzar, which means keeper of the hidden treasures of Bel, was one of the great Babylonian gods. And Azariah, they said, no, no, Azariah, you got a new name, you're now going to be called Abednego, which means servant of the god Nebo, or Nigo, the Babylonian language. Uh, the change of names meant a change of allegiance. They were saying to these Jews, you no longer belong to this God, he's lost. Our God's a triumphant. And the great challenge for Daniel and his friends was to remain faithful to their God, even though they had to bear these Babylonian names. 
But this was not just true personally for the people of Israel, it was also true nationally. The name Israel, Israel, came from one of the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name means he grasped the heel. He was a twin and he came out, his brother Esau came first, and he grabbed hold of his heel as he came out of the womb. Uh, and his name Jacob meant he's a grasper, a cheater, looking out for the, himself. And he, he lived like that. Until finally he wrestled with God one day at the end of his own resources. And at the end of the battle, God said to him, you're no longer Jacob, you'll be called Israel, because it means you've struggled, you've prevailed with God. But again, the name was meant to be far more than a name. The people who bore this name then were meant to reflect the character of the God that they represented. They were meant to display God's name and his character. In other words, they were meant to live up to their name. And that was the very reason why God chose these people, Israel. He chose them so that people in the world would look at them as a kind of object lesson, all the other people who worship the gods of their own making, and they would look at them and say, this is what the real God is like. These people bear his name. They reflect his character. And they would come and worship him. That's why God set his love upon his people, because they bore his name. At the end of his life, in the book of Deuteronomy, the last, uh, right at the end, chapter 28, uh, Moses reminds the people of Israel, they're about to go into the promised land and he's about to leave them. He says, the Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord, your God, and walk in his ways, then all the peoples of the earth will see what? That you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you and fear him. So all peoples will know the Lord. And in that final speech, Moses tells the people of Israel, when you get to this promised land, this land of Canaan that the Lord is taking you to, God is going to choose a specific place where he will be present, where he, you can meet with him. Specifically, the place the Lord chooses, Deuteronomy 12. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And that place is eventually located in Jerusalem, in the temple. And when the temple is dedicated by the great King Solomon, the priests come in and they all pray, and we read that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's presence, his holy presence, just filled the place. They couldn't even get in because they were so awed and overwhelmed by who this God is that he made himself known in this place. Now, here's the good news again as we come to the New Testament, the New Agreement. With the coming of Jesus, the focus shifts from a place to a person. The one in whom the glory of the Lord dwells in all its fullness. Paul writing again, again remarkable from his background, writing for Christians in Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 19 says, In him, Jesus... All the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Think of that glory that filled the temple. It was so overwhelming. And he says, this is now contained, not in a place, but in a person. Everything about Jesus displayed his character, the character of the God that he was, in all its perfection. So John, writing his gospel, one of the disciples who lived with Jesus for three years, 24-7, as the Americans would say, he writes, the word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you know the gospel story, do you remember when Jesus met with that woman of Samaria? The Jews regarded the Samaritans as a kind of race of half-breeds and heretics because they worship their, the Lord, but on their own mountain. And Jesus passed through one day and he had this conversation with this woman at this well and she turns the subject to religion and she says, well, you Jews worship God on that mountain, Mount Zion, where the temple is. We worship God on this mountain. So you tell me which is right. And Jesus says, woman, a time is coming and now has come when true worshippers will worship the Father not on this mountain or that mountain. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him spirit and truth. I am the Messiah, he reveals to her. You will worship God through me. And so Jesus tells his disciples, when you come together in my name, even two or three people come together in my name, there I am among them. He promises that when you pray, you offer prayers to the Father, they will be answered if they're asked in his name. Because it's his authority, his character, because of who he is. In that day, says Jesus, John 8, 16, verse 23, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. That's why when we pray as Christians, at the end we say, we ask these prayers in the name of Jesus. It's not just a kind of magic slogan. It means because of who Jesus is, because of all that he's done, you can come to God through him and God will answer because Jesus is Lord. After the giving of the Holy Spirit, the followers of Jesus go out into the streets and what they proclaim the name of Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And despite opposition, persecution, flogging, they continue to preach in the name of Jesus. After being flogged on the orders of the Jewish council, we read that they left the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace, for the name. So Christians bear the name of the Lord. We bear the name of the Lord Jesus. And so everything we do, therefore, is an expression of the worthiness of the God that we worship and the Saviour that we love. If you're a Christian, that is. So the writer to the Hebrews says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess what? His name. It's what we've been trying to do already in this service. Praising God. Praising the name of Jesus. Now, it's very important to lay this broad groundwork as we come to the concluding part and ask ourselves, what then does it mean to misuse the name of the Lord? All right? The word translated misuse in Exodus 20 verse 7 or to take in vain in the older translation of the Bible, it means, it suggests something false something without meaning or value, something lacking in worthwhile purpose. It means using the Lord's name lightly or carelessly. Now we can be guilty of this in what we say. Not just using the name of the Lord as an exclamation, I trust none of us do that. Certainly if we profess the name of Christ, we should never be heard to do that. But we can use his name thoughtlessly. We can use his name carelessly. How many Christians say, oh, well, the Lord told me to do that? Or, the Lord led me in that way. 
And we just use the Lord's name as a kind of cover for what we actually wanted to do ourselves, but it gives it a kind of religious veneer. J. John challenges us not to name drop with God. Uh, Stuart Briscoe, who ministers in America, warns against using God for my own ends. A challenge to every preacher, to every politician who uses the name of the Lord to justify what we want to do. But an even more serious problem arises when what we say does not match what we do. We can be guilty of misusing the name of the Lord in what we do. Now, this is what happened with the people of Israel. It's a great problem. God's complaint against them, repeated again and again, through the prophets who challenged them, is that they disgraced and dishonoured the Lord's name by their behaviour, because it totally contradicted what they professed about the God that they served. They said, this God that we worship is holy. And yet they live lives that were unholy. So the Lord says, for example, through Isaiah the prophet, he says, this people, they worship me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Now, what is the result? If someone says, I profess the name of God and live in a way that's contrary to the revelation of what this God is really like, then what are you doing? What are you dragging God's name through the dirt? Into the gutter. And the result was the surrounding nations who were supposed to look at the people of Israel and say, that's what the real God is like. They got totally the wrong picture. Something totally dishonouring to God's name. Now, this is a very serious matter. Notice what the commandment says, and it's addressed to us if we, if we claim the name of God. He says, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And here's a challenging and sobering thought. Rather than allow us to bear a false impression of the Lord's name, the Lord would prefer to remove us out of the situation altogether so we don't profess anything. Because we're no longer there. And that's what happened to the people of Israel. God had this great plan. He brought them to Israel, to this nation, to show the world what he was like. And again and again, they dishonoured the name of the Lord. So in the end, the Lord said, okay, I'll take you out of it. Rather than you giving a false witness to my name, I'll remove you and judge you. They were sent off into exile. It resulted in God's judgment. The reading that Colin read for us from Ezekiel. Wherever they went among the nations... They profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, they are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. The Lord says, why did you do that? The Lord says, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Ezekiel 36, 20 and 21. Now, closer to home, the same principle applies to those who bear the name of the Lord Jesus. This is an issue for Christians and churches. If what I say and sing in Charlotte Chapel on Sunday is totally contradicted by the way that I live on Monday and the rest of the week, then I am dishonouring the Lord's name, I am misusing the Lord's name, I am breaking the third commandment. And as with the people of Israel, God's principles don't change. If you do that, he will not hold you guiltless. You are accountable to him. This applies to us individually. It's a great challenge, is it not? 
As I said, you maybe came in thinking, oh, I'm off the hook here. This has nothing to do with me because I never use the name of Jesus in the wrong way. Yes, it does. It means if you live in a way so that people looking at you say, this is what Jesus is like. This is the character of the God that this person professes. Now, I don't mean we're all perfect. None of us is. But I mean if we live in a way that consistently and regularly gives a false impression to people of what Jesus is like, then we are misusing the name of the Lord our God and the Lord will not hold us guiltless. It's that serious. This is true of churches as well. When the good news first came to the great city of Ephesus, it was an occult center, and the Apostle Paul and his friends came and preached the gospel there. It had a fantastic effect. We read in the book of Acts chapter 19, verse 17, that those living in the city were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Everybody looked, and they were filled with fear, because they saw what kind of God this is. They were filled with awe and reverence. And the name of Jesus was held high. So here's an interesting question. Why is the name of Jesus so much abused in our society? Well, you say it's because of the way people are. Yeah, but why did they get that impression about the name of Jesus? Where did they get it from? It's because we have failed to bear true testimony to what Jesus Christ is really like in our world. And so people use his name with contempt. And that, sadly, that same city of Ephesus, some 40 years later, everything had changed. So much so that in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the risen Lord Jesus speaks to the Christians in Ephesus and he issues them a final warning. After this, it's a red card, he says. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, the Lord says, rather than let you bear a false light to the world, I'll take the light out altogether. Now here's the very sad thing. That all those churches in Asia Minor were wiped out. Islam swept in in the 7th century. No witness remained. You say, well, what was God doing? God had concern for his holy name. And he said, rather than let these Christians give the wrong impression to people, I'd sooner they gave no impression at all. So the third commandment especially challenges us who know the Lord and bears his name. The book of Hebrews said, let's worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The honor of his name is a very serious business. And that's the challenge I leave with you for yourself and myself this evening. Are we misusing the name of the Lord our God in the way that we live? Are we different from the rest? Are we living holy lives? Morally? Financially? Sexually? Are our attitudes different? Do people look at us and say, well, I don't know what it is, but there's something different about you. Or do they say, you're just like me, except you go to church on Sunday and I lay in bed and play golf in the afternoon. If you bear the name of Christ, it's an awesome responsibility. So let me issue with a final challenge to everyone, whether you're a Christian or not this evening. Kind of litmus test as to whether you were keeping whether you were keeping the third commandment. Let me leave you with this question. What does the name of Jesus mean to you? What does the name of Jesus mean to you? Does, does it hurt you when you hear people abuse his name? It hurts me. 
in a moment, we're going to finish with a hymn written by a man. Interestingly, he described himself primarily as a blasphemer. The only time he used God's name was as a curse. By the age of 23, just 23, he had abandoned himself to a life of debauchery and drunkenness. He was involved in the dreadful slave trade in the 18th century. Returning to England, his ship was caught in a terrifying storm in the middle of the Atlantic. He tells the story of how he came on deck and a fellow seaman came pushing past him and was immediately blown over the side and lost in the sea. And for the first time since he was a child, he fell on his knees and he uttered a prayer. That's what he said, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. Remarkably, God answered his prayer and saved him. Not just from the sea, but from his sin. Even more remarkably, John Newton became a minister of the gospel, telling other people about Jesus. He was a great hymn writer. Probably you know at least one of his hymns, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saves a Wretch Like Me, because it was his own experience. But another of his hymns expresses this changed attitude to the name of Jesus. And we're going to sing that as we conclude this evening. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear.